Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Matic. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. In this episode of the show, I am joined by Jason Gay. If you listened to an earlier version of this, I uploaded it with the wrong audio file uh, that is now fixed. Jason joined the program to talk to me about some of the recent columns that he has written. I encourage all of you guys to buy Jason's book. I wouldn't do that if I were me. Really enjoyed him and uh, really appreciated him coming on the program. If you want bonus episodes of this show, you can subscribe to patreon.com slash takecast. And if you want to support the show, you can just leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, you can just tell someone about the show. That's very useful, very helpful. Now let's go ahead and get into it. All right, everyone. Very excited to have Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal joining us here today. I've uh, been an avid reader of his columns over the years. Very excited to read his book here coming soon. I wouldn't do that if I were me. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm just great and uh, honored to be here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, All right. So I I just have, uh, as I said, I've I've been reading your stuff for a while. So I just have a couple questions uh, over, over what you've been writing the last few months. The first is, what would be your elevator pitch on why an American audience should be watching the Tour de France? Because my, my sense is people are into F1, people are more into tennis and golf after the Netflix documentaries, but people haven't latched on to the Tour de France quite as much, despite I, I actually thought that documentary was quite well done. Well, uh, I think it's actually kind of an aesthetic pitch. I think that, you know, there's something special about watching a tour de France in the United States because for virtually everybody, it is morning television. I know there are probably some uh, night birds on the West Coast who catch it when they're still awake. But for the most of us, you know, you are waking up early and you have that um, feed going on. You can watch, you know, of course, the NBC Peacock feed. You can watch the World feed now, Eurosport. Um, and it's just a sort of like, I think, you know, very pleasurable ambient type uh, viewing experience where, as you know, well, you know, it's a four or five hour telecast. Not a lot is happening uh, for most of it. Um, it rambles around the countryside. It takes you to beautiful places in France. And there are a lot less uh, elegant things to have on your television screen than this. So compared to watching something like golf or, you know, the morning Battle of sports talk on uh, on cable television. I think that it's a very perfect experience. I know a lot of people who watch it just because they like looking at France. You know, they like the helicopter shots of chateaus and farms and tractors and all that kind of stuff. And I get it. Um, and then hopefully along the way they become, you know, more knowledgeable and interested in the sport, more invested in the athletes who are out there because they're pretty remarkable too. But 
I really just think it's a it's kind of a, a, a pleasurable summer experience for people. And, and I don't know how you feel, but I definitely feel people have a little bit of a um, withdrawal when it ends. You know, the Women's Tour of France, thankfully, is going on through the end of the week. Uh, but after that, it really shuts down and that experience is gone until next year. That That's always been my experience is that so my dad was a semi-professional cyclist he he raced on a, a team in his youth with levi leipheimer who was on the usps team with um with lance armstrong and all that stuff so i've always for me it's always been on it's always been around and so i i do find that um you know sort of that comforting it is it's great on your tv i mean it just it's appealing to look at and uh to me it's very similar to watching european golf like the the dp world tour where sure I don't really care that much about it, but it's nice to have on. I can tune in when I need to. I don't need to be locked in. And as you get more and more into it, you realize it actually like it's a pretty strategy heavy game. Like these teams are are really trying to do they're they're playing uh, you know chess, not checkers with each other a lot of the time. And that is something that I mean you do you got to get pretty into it to understand. Uh, you know, all the different roles that the guys on, on the team play. But that is, uh, in and of itself, starting to understand that is like its own reward. No, it is. And I think that, you know, I've been following it for quite a long time, and I won't claim to have uh, every nuance of it sorted out. I learn stuff every time I'm around it, every time I watch it. Um, uh, you know, listen, the one of the beauties and sort of comedies I think of cycling fandom is that there's always somebody who knows more than you do and isn't afraid to tell you that. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a special constituency and I feel very lucky to have a relationship with it. Well, I mean, that is, that is certainly true. That's also been my experience with soccer as an American, you know, um, like I, I love soccer. It's, it's actually probably my favorite sport. It's my favorite sport to watch. It's, it's a sport that I can watch with no um, gambling action on, you know, just like just watch it and, and enjoy it for the sake of the sport. Whereas like, I can't really imagine watching a football or basketball game these days. And uh, mm-hmm. we are, we are sort of in a moment for soccer in the United States because we had, uh, I mean, the, the absolute incredible moment of Lionel Messi subbing in for his first game scoring a free kick with the last kick of the game, dedicating the goal to his teammate he just met like five minutes before. And yeah. the, the U.S. women are, are you know, pretty much the overwhelming favorite in the, uh, I mean, it's not the greatest time slot that these games are being played in, in the, uh, the, the opposite side of the world, U.S. Women's World Cup. But you, you recently wrote a column stating, you know, the United States is kind of already a soccer country, which I think is true up until a point, but basically is is your takeaway that the largest league in the world it will never it will never be in the United States. It, we will be consumers of European soccer, but it will never be it will never live here. I mean that is the assumption I think, obviously because of the heritage, tradition, and you know sort of culture of soccer in both Europe and in other parts of the world, especially South America. I mean, you know, you can name many, many countries that have a more advanced soccer history than the United States. However, you know, I think that the MLS has aspirations to become one of the bigger leagues in the world. And and we see with transfers and the way that works. I mean, look how 
you know, the, the Saudi league has now, you know, stepped up and is making all kinds of astronomical offers to athletes, uh, a league that no one thought twice about a year and a half ago. Um, things can change, you know, and you see the balance of power has tipped within even the European leagues over the years. So, yes, you're 100% right. The United States doesn't have a claim yet to being one of the leading soccer nations, but I think it has arrived in terms of a place that people care about the sport or passionate about it, have increasingly sophisticated conversations about it, has a wildly, uh, you know, um, uh, fertile uh, youth development program, um, you know, it is, I think, now the second, a third most popular youth sport in the country behind, weirdly enough, baseball uh, and also basketball, less surprisingly. Um, and there's just a lot of, you know, as they say in, uh, you know, gardening, green shoots, right? There are a lot of positive things to point at. And so that column was really just a reflection of you know, there is a funny thing that happens, the cycle, whenever something American and soccer-y happens, we people say, well, soccer has finally arrived in the United States, and I kind of feel it's been living and breathing with us for decades now. Uh, it might not have the cultural hold of the NFL. It might not have the kind of impact as something even like the World Series or Stanley Cup, but it's getting there. And, and I, I think you only have to look at the youth, look at young people, uh, and ask them about what their favorite football player is, and, and they know exactly what you're talking about. They'll say Messi, they'll say Mbappe, they'll say Harry Kane or whomever. I think kids are, because of the way that the Internet has eliminated a lot of the borders, the barriers to entry. When you and I were growing up, the idea of watching a Premier League game was a lot more complicated. Those things don't exist for young people. It's all available to them. It actually is, like the Tour de France, kind of a fun morning ritual. I think you hear a lot from parents and children who make watching Premier League games on the weekend part of their family experience. Uh, all those things are happening simultaneously. And now you have Messi, you know, you know, arguably the GOAT here among us, still playing at a high level after the World Cup doing well you know they couldn't have asked for a better highlight than that i kind of joked that like as soon as he free kick went in he should have just hopped in the plane and said okay i've done my job here that's you know like it's not going to get any better than that i mean i don't know could it like you know maybe people will be more invested in it you'll see people signing on maybe inter miami will become a better team because they're not terribly good right now but he mission accomplished in terms of doing what people hoped he would do I actually think you you hit on the key point, which seems so minute that it, it you you never hear this topic discussed. But the fact that soccer is not competing directly on television with other sports, or or even you know prestige television or whatever, is a huge advantage for it. It's on Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings. You know, Champions League is is Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons. Like it's. Yep. Especially, I mean, honestly, and now that people are working from home, like you just put on, you know, uh, uh, you know, you put on the Champions League, you, you get to watch Porto play Inter Milan or whatever on a Tuesday afternoon, and it's it's a nice way to kill some time. Like it is, I actually think that's a huge advantage. And the other point I, I was thinking while you were talking, I definitely have had more conversations about soccer with people who are not, you know, in in my line of work, not on this podcast not in, you know, just out about in the world, way more people are interested in European soccer and even the MLS because I live in a town that has an MLS team than, Mm -hmm. than baseball, right? I mean, 
certainly the people who have watched baseball for their entire lives, you know, that, that, that demographic, they're not watching MLS games. They're not watching Champions League on a Tuesday afternoon. But people in their 40s and their 30s and their 20s, they are way more locked in to soccer because it is, honestly, it is one of the great effects of globalization that 10 years ago, I don't even know, like, I, how would I have even watched the Premier League? But now it's like I can just watch it on my phone. It's so easy. No, it's a byproduct of globalization. It's a byproduct of the internet, you know, and, and with regard to the funny times that you're able to watch it and sort of the, the uncompetitive times, I mean, look, there's a reason why they don't put NFL games on, except for, I guess, those London games at 9 o'clock on the weekend, 9 o'clock in the morning on the weekends. It's because fewer people are watching TV. If you really want to optimize eyeballs, you try to go late in prime time. But I do feel it's given... European soccer, this marvelous cut uh, carve out to build not just, you know, interest, but a habit, you know, it becomes a habit. You just turn on the game. It's in a funny way, a little bit like the way that people used to watch baseball in the eighties and seventies, even where, you know, there was like the MLB game of the week. Right. And you didn't necessarily have a personal investment in whatever the game of the week was, but it was the game of the week and it was, cool and it was on at a certain time and premier league has that flavor to it the coverage in the united states and i think that that's been helpful and again i i point to the penetration um with young audiences and just seeing you know where you go in the world i mean there were arsenal played manchester united over the weekend in jersey and eighty thousand people were there a lot of them kids a lot of them who are super fans of either team or a premier league and that is the kind of um, audience and investment that any league would kill for, including the NFL. I mean, it doesn't do the NFL that much of a favor to just have, you know, the same 55-year-olds, you know, arguing and going to games and, you know, hyper-invested in the clubs. You want to build that youth audience, and, and that is something that soccer has. Yeah, 100%, which actually ties in to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is that if Shohei Otani existed, let's say 30 years ago, I think is the line, I think he would have been bigger than Bo Jackson, bigger than Deion Sanders. I think he would have been Michael Jordan level famous, right? I mean, he is, what Shohei Otani does every single night, honestly, for a very, I think part of it is that he plays for such an anonymous, shitty team. But what what is your opinion on why Shohei Otani is not, I mean, what what is Shohei Otani's Q score? You know, like there are there are certainly towns and cities in the United States where he could walk into a Target and like what you know whatever do his shopping and people wouldn't know who he is, which which seems insane because to me he is the greatest living athlete right now. I mean, maybe him and Messi are, are pretty close, but why why is Shohei Otani not a culturally that big of a deal in the United States? I mean. I get that this is a common conversation that happens uh, with regard to his fame or lack thereof, and that there seems to be an opportunity here to say, well, it's reflective of how baseball has shrunk in the American, you know, sort of mainstream zeitgeist uh, that we don't talk about the sport in the same way. But uh, I don't care so much (laughs) because I also know that I know the reality of the situation is that 
you also have more access to Otani uh, now than you ever would have had it been the 70s or 80s. Now, I agree with you that baseball was a bigger deal back then, and it could be argued that Otani would have been a bigger deal back then, but you also never would have been able to see him play. You know, Otani would have come to York if you're on the East Coast. If you were in the National League, forget about it. You wouldn't see him unless it was a World Series or an All-Star game. Uh, You certainly weren't going to be getting the uh, repertoire of highlights that you get instantaneously delivered on your phone through social media. There are all these factors that have contributed to giving awareness of what he's doing. Now, he's not, again, I agree, he's not on the scale of a Messi or a LeBron James uh, I think give it time a little bit. I agree with you that the franchise situation has been fraught, the combination of playing for a West Coast team, a team that has been, you know, beset by both injuries and a lot of questionable management decisions. You know, you put them on the Dodgers, you put them on the Yankees. I don't know if it'll be exponential growth, but it'll certainly be significant. I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to feel like He's a very, very famous baseball player. He is starting to reach this level where the thing I would compare it most to is where Steph Curry was maybe five or six years ago where people started showing up to the basketball games in advance because they just wanted to see him practice shooting. Otani energy kind of has the same feeling to it that he comes to the town and, you know, you love to be able to see him pitch and hit, but at the very least, you're going to be able to see him bat and you get to the ballpark because you don't want to miss in that bat because he could hit a rocket home run. Um, you know, again, he's, he's going to be on a team, which a, a, a good amount more visibility. He will be the highest paid team sports athlete in the history of this country undoubtedly. I mean, barring some terrible thing happening to his body, he's going to get paid at a spectacular amount. Um, I, 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 I'm okay with where he is. I mean, I think, I think you did kind of hit at the center of it, which is that playing for a non-anonymous team, assuming, I mean, we'll, we'll find out if he gets traded very soon, but regardless, I, I think the odds of him re-signing this offseason, if he's not traded with the Angels, quite low, feels I mean to me growing up uh, I'm, I'm almost 31 years old it feels like he should just be a Yankee because the Yankees are supposed to have all the biggest stars in baseball and the Yankees are one of the teams that can afford to give him like a literal billion dollar contract and I think that will make uh, a real difference okay you you had a column about six weeks ago about sports gearaholism which I, I could not have related to anymore. Because it, and it, this drives my wife insane. Anytime I get into a new hobby, golf, tennis, for you it's cycling, it's been, it's been a million different things for me, I become so hyper fixated on it and I have to get the best gear, right? You got to get, get the clothes, you got to get the gear, you have to look the part. What is it about you know, men who are, who are cresting past their athletic peak. What is it that drives us to just absolutely need to have all this gear to do, you know, to be honest, relatively simple hobbies? Oh, I think it, it's a combination of things. Of course, uh, I think it starts with the delusion of improved performance that, you know, somehow purchasing, whether it's this glove or this tee or this weight set or this, you know, swing trainer is going to make a discernible change to your success and whatever endeavor you're after. Um, I think 
the internet, uh, the internet's always a factor in everything, it seems, but I think the growth of the internet and in particular internet shopping and the availability of product um, contributes to it as well. You know, again, uh, you know, when you were very young, you know, you wanted sporting equipment, you went to the sporting goods store and sometimes they had what you wanted and sometimes they didn't. And if you didn't have what you wanted, tough luck, right? Uh, now you have every available option at your fingertips available to be delivered to you within 24 to 48 hours. Um, I think that contributes to it as well. And then I just also feel like there's just something about, you know, um, especially sort of middle-aged consumer culture where you are, you know, you find your little hobby and your little corner of the world where, you know, your friends, your family might not be as invested in something as you are. And it's your little, like, it's your safe space, Davis. It's your nice little safe space where you can go online, you can look at golf equipment and no one's going to bug you. And I think that that contributes to it as well. What I thankfully was able to, um, reach a point of self-awareness where I realize that I stink at all these things. You know, I'm never going to be great at tennis or golf or fishing, certainly not cycling. Um, the thing that I would have to radically change the most is myself and my own personal athletic limitations. So I was really just kind of throwing good money after bad. And I spend a lot less on this stuff than I once did. And there's something actually really freeing about that. The fact that, you know, Every week, I mean, you, you realize you've had the same bike for a number of years and you're not hankering to get a new one because you realize that there's only so much that bike can do. I'm the one who's really responsible for my um, success or failure uh, or slowness uh, uh, doing it. That's the deal that I've had to make with myself for these things. Like when I first got into golf, I was you know buying new wedges and I needed a new putter and I needed... And so I uh, my my cure for sports gear holism is to tie new purchases to improvement so i'm like okay if you if, if you are in the 80s twice then you can get new golf thing x or whatever or if you want to start running again and being really serious if you do it 20 times in a month then you can get new shoes or whatever that is the that is the deal that i've had to make with myself i found that to be really really the only effective way for uh for me to to not uh you know go overboard with purchasing things for the hobbies that that's my suggestion to the to the people out there who are also sufferers well also the reality is that you know some of the purchasing we do because we think it's going to make us cool right we have the cool have the cool driver but we both know like let's take golf specifically nothing's cooler than the person who shows up to the golf course in rubber clogs, uh, a seven iron, a putter, and a and a and a and a three wood, and they play the whole course that way. You know, like they, 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 they have found the 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 virtue of simplicity, and they're not too caught up in exactly what they're carrying around with them. All right. Well, Jason, thank you very much for hopping on the show with me. Uh, tell the people. Actually, I always ask authors this: Where is the best place for someone to purchase? I wouldn't do that if I were me. Modern blunders and modest triumphs where's the best place for them to purchase that for you yeah first of all thank you for having me i really appreciate it uh and you know the the usual suspects whether it's your amazon barnes and nobles especially your local independent bookstores if you have one in your region i urge you to support those always um and uh if they don't have it i'm sure they're available to order it and uh and get it to you quickly and i and i really appreciate this opportunity 
All right, everyone, uh, make sure that you are following Jason Gay. Make sure that you read the book, and uh, we will be back next week. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 